back to the Eyes Up Life podcast. Thank you so much for being here. We are in the third to last episode of this series with Maxis Sponsored Athletes, and I'm glad you're joining us. If this is your first time, welcome. Please make sure you check out all of the other episodes. And a little bit of background here before we jump into the episode. Eyes Up started as a 7,000-mile bike ride around the United States to raise awareness for distracted driving. I completed this ride solo and finished in September of last year. Immediately after completing the ride, I set out on a road trip to interview 21 athletes and affiliates of Maxxis Tires. Check out MaxxisTires.com, learn about their awesome products for anything with wheels. I like their tires for bikes. I also completed the road trip on a set of Maxxis tires on my friend's truck. They were kind enough to provide those tires for a safe means of transportation for the 7,000-mile road trip. Maxxis was kind enough to partner with me for this trip and connect me to these awesome people that you're listening to today. And... My mission now is less focused on biking around the country and more on spreading this message of why it's so important to end distracted driving and the benefits of living with your eyes up, which extend far beyond just driving safely in the car. The benefits of digital wellness and living in real time off your phone, or at least with a smaller focus on time with your phone, are huge. And that's part of what we talk about in these conversations with the Maxis athletes. Today, we have Kate Courtney joining the program. Kate is an Olympian, a really talented mountain bike racer. She was number one in the world for a while and has a really strong career ahead of her. I spoke with Kate in the Bay Area of California And we had an awesome conversation. I think she's really well-spoken and super aware of her own habits on social media. She even has some strategies in place already for herself to keep her phone use intentional and to minimize the distractions and wasted time. So stay tuned and listen in to my conversation with Kate Courtney. Her career is super awesome. She's a really energetic, great person, was kind enough to lend me an hour of her time, and we'll talk to you at the end. Enjoy. Uh, My name is Kate Courtney. I'm a professional mountain bike racer from Marin County, California. Sweet. Um, Can you walk me through how you got into mountain bike racing? Yeah, so I grew up at the base of Mount Tamalpais, which is where mountain biking was originally invented in the 60s and 70s, um, and just started riding for fun at a young age with my dad, which I think was kind of my first exposure to just being outdoors, exploring, adventuring, and having kind of the power to get myself from point A to point B. And then in high school, uh, my high school had a mountain bike race team through the NICA League, and I was a runner, I did a bunch of different sports and thought, hey, maybe this would be great cross training um, and immediately was hooked. So from my freshman year in high school, I obviously uh, became very enamored with the sport and um, things escalated quickly and I ended up starting to race professionally uh, when I started college. 
when was like the first race that you did and when you were like this is it or maybe you didn't have a moment like that but yeah I so my first mountain bike race ever it was in the spring of my freshman year in high school and it was through that um NICA high school league so the NorCal league and the events are amazing they're really a super inclusive but also competitive environment and it's very family focused and um, also team-based so you know being the only girl on the team I was very important to be able to uh, score points for everyone so you kind of had this um, really great environment as a starting point and then this opportunity to really compete in the races and for me from the moment I kind of lined up and the gun went off in that first freshman race um, I just loved competing and I think you know in running and skiing I loved training I loved practicing I actually was like the odd kid who liked like the hard work side of things I liked going uphill I liked being in the gym I liked um, kind of that like off-season work of the sports but running competing was not that fun to me it was just kind of a 17-minute suffer fest uh, in cross-country running and mountain biking was completely different it was technical it was tactical it had these same endurance elements um, it was super dynamic and of course there's the equipment involved as well and I feel like it gave me a platform not only to compete against other people and push myself but really to compete against myself and kind of within myself and that was something I was hooked on from the start. So have you always been a pretty competitive person would you say? I would say yes um, I've definitely always been competitive I think Interestingly enough, growing up, I would say I was always someone that was like celebrated for working hard, like and hustling, but I was never very good at the sports I did. So I did played soccer, I did gymnastics, I horseback rode, I ski raced, and I was always kind of like middle of the pack, but like with a lot of heart, um, which is actually kind of worse because I just felt, oh, maybe I don't have the innate talent to be an athlete. Um, and then I think when I found cycling in particular, I started to connect this this work ethic and the ability to just kind of like commit myself to do the small things, to suffer um, and to stay really focused to seeing progress. And once I saw that, it kind of became, um, yeah, really motivating for me. And I think I, you know, this little like competitive spirit I had found its home in cycling. And so you got into it. What's been your career? How, how did you build it and where, where are you at now? Yeah, so I've been racing um, technically on a pro contract since I was a freshman in college in 2013. Uh, for the first four years, I was a full-time student. Um, so I was a little, a little over, overwhelmed with the balance of those two things, but I was racing in the U23 category internationally in World Cups. Um, and I think just worked my way up really steadily. I started out I like to say I was like in the four years of under 23, I was eighth in the overall, fourth in the overall, second in the overall, and, and won the overall my last year of college. So I kind of just like step by step consistently followed that trajectory. And by the time I graduated, it was clear if I wanted to that I could do it full time. And of course, I jumped at that opportunity. Um, and then, yeah, my first few years out of college uh, were really successful. I was the first woman to win uh, the U.S., win the world championship for the U.S. Um, since, I think, 2001. And then the next year followed it up with a bunch of World Cup wins and a World Cup overall win um, and auto-qualified to the Olympics. So it kind of, like, escalated pretty quickly at that point. And since then, yeah, I've been trying to kind of, like, 
stay near the top. I had a really tough Olympic season and I've been working my way back up. So slowly, you know, getting back to trying to be on that podium and hopefully win some more races in the coming years. So what year was it that you went to the Olympics? When was that? It was 2021. It was supposed to be 2020. And then we, uh, we had kind of a little bit of a gap year. <laughs> so it was, just, it was literally just last year. Mm -hmm. So what was yeah. that experience like? Yeah, it was a tough one. I think um, it's interesting. Like when I tell the story of that trajectory of my career, you can kind of hear that there's like a lot of momentum leading into that 2020 year. And then it, it like falls flat for a little bit. Um, and I think, you know, it hit athletes at different points in their career. Some young athletes were like, oh my God, I get a year to train and try to make it. Or, um, you know, some of the older athletes, it, it, you know, made them kind of say, okay, I'm going to retire now. Like that was the plan. And so I think it just like affected people really differently. And for me, it kind of came at this point where I was like really at a peak moment in my career. I'd qualified. I was kind of like, I would say like in pole position going into the Olympic year. Um, and that pressure was really tough. I think, especially in the U S we had no races. Uh, and I went from first to 77th in the UCI ranking, um, just without even competing. So it, it was definitely like a big change of mindset. And I think, I kind of kept the throttle completely open through that year and through 2021. And by the time I actually got to the Olympics, it, it didn't go well for a variety of reasons. Um, but I think that throttle had been open a bit too long. So it required a huge reset and definitely um, a reassessment. And then I've been in a rebuilding phase, which I think has been easier at some points than others. I think now I'm like really appreciative of what this um, build is teaching me and also of the gift of being able to say, okay, I want to get back to the top, but it's going to take a few years and to put together a really solid plan and a really smart plan to do that consistently, similarly to how I did it the first time. So knowing how much work goes into getting back to that point, what keeps you going? Because it can't possibly be easy mentally. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. I think, um, one of the hardest things as an athlete is dealing with those kind of like plateau experiences, I would say is where, you know, it's really fun when you're getting better quickly. I think young athletes, if you just kind of like add training to a motivated young athlete, like you'll go like this and you kind of see, Oh, I'm getting better every year, or every week, uh, even. So, for me, I think it's really appreciating this kind of overall process and creating really clear checkpoints for me. So um, currently, like having really good testing, having really clear objectives, not just in terms of I want to win this race, but like what within my performance team are we working on and what shows me that I'm doing a good job and um, making progress. And then on the other side, just having fun on my bike. So I think the combination of those two things are really what it takes to have me at my best, this kind of like clear progression, checkpoints, analytics side, and then also this like, I just love riding my bike um, piece. And it's hard sometimes to balance those two and to keep them both kind of firing on all cylinders. But when I'm able to do that, I think, um, yeah, I don't have to spend a lot of time thinking about how to be motivated. I'm just kind of along for the ride. So can you talk to me about what your, the specific discipline that you compete at is like and how the other forms of cycling play into that training for that discipline? Yeah, so I race cross-country mountain bikes. Um, typically, a cross-country mountain bike race is about four to five kilometer course, and we do five or six laps for the women's race. So the goal is to have it be around an hour and a half in time. 
Um, and the way I like to describe it is it's a little bit like sprinting a marathon. So it's a highly anaerobic sport. It's super high peak power for short periods of time, but then with descents mixed in. So you can stay at that high, um, high power. So it's not, you know, like a slow endurance sport. It's like a repetitive, intense bouts um, of effort. So that requires really kind of dynamic training. You have to have that base endurance, that big engine. Um, which is more base training. I do a lot of that on my gravel bike or my road bike. Um, you have to have the skills so that you can navigate those descents when you're maxed out, uh, not make mistakes, be smooth, and, and do it consistently. So I train a lot on my um, trail bike for that and, of course, my race bike. And, yeah, all together, um, I think when you can kind of, like, master these different skills, you're able to put together a great performance. Is there one type of ride that's your favorite? Like if you had a dream riding experience? Dream ride. <clears throat> I mean, my, my heart will always be with my mountain bike. Um, I think, yeah, that's what got me into the sport. I loved being able to like ride to the top of Mount Tam. I think for me, that ability to just like go from point A to point B and see how far you've come um, and particularly get a good view at the top has always been a huge part of the sport for me. Um, so yeah, long, long climbs, fun descents and, uh, on my mountain bike, I think would be the best. So you do a lot of riding off trails, like mm -hmm. on roads. You were saying that you rode today on the road. So talk to me about being in a really popu heavy, heavily populated area and what it's like with other users of the road and that experience being on a bike. Yeah, it can often be a little bit of a tricky experience. I think around here um, where I grew up in Marin and, and where I live now, um, it's a little bit easier to get out of the uh, off the beaten path when you go on trail. So that's why I particularly love my gravel bike for base training where I can kind of like take some shortcuts, go where the cars aren't. Um, but there's always going to be some time on busier roads. And you know, that can be a really um, eye-opening and pretty kind of shaking experience to be on the road, having especially motorcycles um, coming really close to you and, and just not having any control over that. So I think there's a degree to which I'm able to limit my exposure. I ride on trail a lot, um, try to be safe, have a tail light, stay in the bike lane to the best of my ability. Um, but there's also just going to be some scenarios in which you just have to kind of hope for the best. And, um, yeah. Have you had any, uh, direct or indirect, uh, experience with, um, distracted drivers or close calls and what were the, what were those like? Yeah, there's definitely been quite a few, uh, close calls. Um, I think distracted driving is a huge part of that when people just aren't paying attention and aren't able to either see if there's a cyclist or kind of like read what's happening. Um, obviously they're a little bit more kind of tentative around cars, but around a bike, like if I hit a car, uh, they're going to be okay. I might not be, but, um, I think they're a little less attentive to cyclists. Um, I've had a few like people kind of either turn in front of a group of cyclists. Uh, luckily I'm usually with people who know how to ride their bikes really well. So we can do a little bit of defensive bike riding and, and avoid, uh, the worst of it. Um, but I've definitely also had a few times where like the worst, the worst example, I was with my dad and, um, we were turning left and we were on like a pretty fast road, but it was like very clear. We were in the middle of the road with our like 
signaling we were turning um, and a car came around the corner and was in the other lane, like on the other side, uh, trying to pass. And it was just a super aggressive move. I don't know if it was a result of distracted driving um, or just being a really bad driver or an irresponsible driver. Uh, but I almost got wrecked on that, like turning in. And actually my dad just started screaming and I kind of like at the last minute, like bailed from turning and the car like skidded and stopped. So that was my worst, like almost hit by a car experience. Um, I'm pretty sure it was like more traumatic for my dad than me and he will like never forget this moment. Uh, but I think it was a good example. Um, in my opinion, I think it was probably just really irresponsible driving. But if that had been irresponsible driving plus distracted driving, there's no way they would have kind of like figured out what, had, what was happening um, and been able to avoid the worst of it. Uh, and so that, that was definitely a, um, an eye-opening experience that has made me a little bit more conservative in, in the future. What keeps you motivated to continue riding on the road? Because I know a lot of people who have just totally scrapped road riding uh, altogether and are only riding you know, mountain or gravel. What, what yeah. keeps you going? It's great for training. Riding on the road is awesome for training. Um, and I really enjoy it. And I think for me, I try to think about ways to keep myself safe, to like really be responsible, pay attention, um, anticipate what other people are doing. My dad talks about like defensive driving a lot. And he told me that all the time when he was teaching me to drive. And, and now we talk about defensive riding where, you know, you see a car up ahead and you just assume the worst, just assume that they're not paying attention at all. Um, and put yourself in positions where you can kind of manage it. Um, and I would say, you know, there's, of course, a huge category of things that are going to be completely outside my control. So it's easy to say, oh, I can like, I'm a good bike rider. I can avoid certain things, which is true. But um, yeah, if someone's like texting and driving in the bike lane, uh, there's not much that I'm going to be able to do about that situation. So there's certainly a little bit of kind of acceptance of risk, I would say. Um, but there's also certainly a big focus on like mitigating the risk wherever possible. What's your approach to driving and your relationship to distractions in the car? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's hard. Like I, for sure, I'm like changing music and like fiddling with directions a lot when driving. And it's something that's made me a little bit more compassionate, I would say to drivers. Like, of course, if you're texting and you're just like not paying attention, like clear, that is not okay. Like you are in a really dangerous situation. Um, but I also understand the stress of like being late to something, not knowing where you're going, looking for where to park. Um, and I think that's where like, just again, being really defensive as a driver and a cyclist, um, we can all kind of look out for each other better. Because for me, you know, of course, like I think about it from the perspective of being a cyclist. Like when I see a cyclist and it's a sketchy pass, I just stop and wait and sit behind them, give them a bunch of room. Um, and I think that's like comes from my own experiences riding and, and maybe a lot of people don't have that experience. Um, but in terms of like the distraction part, I, I think it is like there are, there is a degree to which like anyone driving in the modern day, if you have music and an audiobook or you have like alerts on your phone or you have a map, like there is a lot of input coming in. And so I can appreciate how challenging it is to like 
resist that and really like focus. Um, and that, that's something that I definitely struggle with as well. Yeah. And there's so, yeah, there's so many distractions beyond the phone. And a few days ago, someone brought up the point of kids in the car. Like if you're a teenager and you're driving around with your friends, like they're obviously going to be distracting, like using TikTok or whatever, you know, yeah. and just, uh, like that's a hard thing. All of them. Dropping a water bottle. Like, yeah, I don't know. Right. There's just, yeah. Like what's the really point? There's not an easy solution. Um, but I'm curious to hear if you have thoughts on a step that we all can take to move us forward in the right direction. Yeah, that's a really good um, way of talking about it. And I appreciate that because I would say my like impulse is to be like, oh, I never have my phone anywhere near me in the car, which is like unreliable and not accurate. Like we all have to like navigate in this new system, which I think hopefully is evolving a little bit. I would say for me, having an integrated system where my phone like shows up on the like the navigation is like in a safe place and it's like linked to the car system. That's actually helped a ton where you don't ever reach for your phone. You can like control the music on the steering wheel or you can have the directions like be visible to you without having to kind of like look down in a way that like really takes your eyes off the road um, or even having like the audio for the directions in where you can just kind of like glance at the map and you like understand what's happening. Um, I think all of those little changes have just made the easy or the right thing to do, the easy thing to do. Um, and when I think about habit formation and for my own self, like how to limit that distraction, um, having good systems is something that I think can really help me. Do, do not disturb is a good example. Having it linked into the car is a good example. Um, and then also just like making the choice to table those, those thoughts that pop into your head when you're driving. You're like, oh, I should do this. I should talk to this person. I should send a message. Um, I think that's, that's the hard part that we all have to kind of grapple with. For sure. Um, do you, so do you use the, uh, the driving focus, do not disturb feature while you're driving? Like, is that on while you're while you're driving or it comes on automatically it actually comes on on my bike rides too it thinks i'm as fast as a car uh, no i'm well, kidding so i'm good. like talk about unrelatable here we are driving um, <laughs> no i think that helps a lot honestly like one of the biggest changes i've made that is like a really small subtle thing is when i'm driving if i have like a long drive and i think of something that i need to tell someone i just call them and i think that's like a very like weird thing at first especially like i don't know in my generation like in your generation, like calling is weird. Like if my best friend calls me, I'm like, Hey, you okay? Uh, but I've started to do that. And usually people are like, it's nice to connect. It's like, people are happy to hear from you. Uh, and you can get that kind of message across without needing to text. Um, and so that's something I've tried to do. And there's like a little side benefit where you like end up catching up with people, whether it's like calling my brother, like, I don't talk to my brother that much right now. He lives in Denver. So like give him a call, tell him the little thing I wanted to text him. Um, and, and just do that in audio. Uh, I think it makes driving more pleasant and it keeps me less distracted where I'm not like on the phone or texting. Like I can do that on speakerphone or through the audio of the car, um, and not take my eyes off the road. And then you don't have to worry about texting them later because everything's all wrapped up. Exactly. So I think that can also be distracting if you're like, oh, I have this like to-do list that I'm making. Yeah. Yeah. Although I guess what I just described to you is talking on the phone while driving, which sounds very distracted, but 
can be focused. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I hear you. And it's, it's, there's, there's a lot of gray area because literally everything that's not just putting your eyes on the road and driving is a, you could argue that it's a distraction. And I think, I think the point that you were making earlier about having systems to minimize and cut out the, the worst offenders is going to be the best way forward versus asking people to, I mean, we'll get to this later, but it's, it's, we're not going to ask people to just abandon social media altogether, you know, to like yeah. have healthier mental or have better mental health. You know, it's, that's a ridiculous ask. Yeah. So like, yeah, having those systems in place is great. What would you say to someone who is a, like a regular texter while driving, like, and they just don't understand that they can't multitask and what they're doing is really stepping up the risk of causing a crash or death? Yeah, I would say, you know, you can tell people all you want, like, do this, don't do this. But I think at the end of the day, you have to be honest with yourself. And I think, um, admitting like when you are putting yourself in a dangerous situation and most importantly when you're putting other people like the people around you the people on bikes the kids crossing the street in danger um that is something that you need to kind of like be able to look yourself in the mirror and say i'm doing the best i can and i'm making good decisions uh and i do think i've had some of those moments myself where like had to like do a quick thing and you think like, I really wanted to do that, but, like, that's, that was unsafe. Or, like, I really need to, like, be honest with myself in these quiet moments where there's no one else and there was no accident and there's no feedback that that was super dangerous, um, but I know that that wasn't the right thing to do or I know that that wasn't, like, I wasn't focused in that moment or I wasn't driving safely. Um, I think that's really what it's going to take to make those changes and, you know, acknowledging that we're all imperfect. And yeah, like I'm talking on the phone, on speakerphone to my brother sometimes, as I just said. But if I can do that and be really focused on the road and give bike space and, and be driving well, then I can feel okay about that. Um, and so having that conversation with yourself and, and finding the ways that you can limit those moments that kind of make you question whether you're, yeah, all there, all focused and doing the right thing. Yeah, it's the something that's been hard for me is you, it's hard to draw a hard line, especially so the the texting while driving thing is fine. I think it's hard to argue. Well, it's not hard to argue with people, but it's hard to make a point with people who are like, I am good at driving in a straight line on a highway with no one on the road and using my phone, you know, because they're yes 99 percent of the time there's going to be no one in front of you and you'll be fine but like how do you make the point that there's a there's a chance that something could happen mm. you'd, you'd kill someone you know yeah. and the same is true with like stopping at a red light like any state with the hands-free law you're not supposed to be on your phone even at a red light like how do you tell someone that you can't be on your phone at a red light because it's it seems pretty innocent to a rational yeah. person because like unless you're just asleep on your phone like you just put it down when you start driving again you know yeah that's interesting i didn't actually know that was illegal yeah but in like, most states yeah in, in like if car, you're completely stopped it's still illegal to be it's still texting or still you know you can't have your phone that's super i like literally didn't know that yeah. but um like, how do you yeah how do you, how do you make that argument yeah 
And I can understand that. I think that's that's difficult. And like that is where those like gray area things come in where it's like, yeah, if you like missed miss the light and you're there for like 10 minutes at like a six way thing and you like answer a message like you probably aren't really putting someone at risk. But if you're creating habits that you keep edging up, oh, well, I did that and it was fine. Oh, well, now we're moving a little bit and I'm just finishing it. Okay. Uh, like you can start to rationalize things that do become really dangerous and potentially life-threatening. Yeah, I think that's, I think you hit the nail on the head there because, and that, that's why people text and drive because they've had so many instances where they've done it and it's been fine and everything's okay. And so it's just reinforcing incorrectly like the bad, the bad yeah. behavior. Yeah, and I mean, hopefully like back to technology, like I really think that there are going to be other solutions that will help us continue to be like more hands-free. Like you can dictate text, you can dictate things. Um, and think, thinking while driving is not necessarily distracted driving. I think that's been a pastime forever. Um, but if you can avoid the times that, yeah, you are taking your eyes off the road and you are um, completely turning your attention to something else, like I think, that would reduce risk a lot, especially for cyclists like me who are out there training. Yeah, agreed. Let's yeah. pivot to social media. You're, you have a very <clears throat> strong social media presence. I'm curious to hear about what your timeline has been with social media, what your day-to-day -day is like with it and how that kind of plays into your normal life and the balance. Yeah, I think social media is a tricky one. Um, I haven't had like a normal, like just using it within my friends relationship with social media ever, just because I have had this kind of cycling career and there's always been this kind of public facing aspect of my presence on social media. So for me, it's ended up being um, in many ways, difficult to manage you know how is it interfacing with my personal life like what do I want to share what do I not feel comfortable sharing um and then of course like in terms of feedback like both positive feedback do I need this is this helpful for my life and negative feedback like how do I navigate this is this negatively affecting me um can be just challenging to sort out but at the end of the day I think I've come to the opinion that it can be a really positive tool when used correctly. So for me, I've thought a lot about what are the types of things I want to be sharing and why am I sharing them? And overall, what I came back to is I really believe in hard work over a long period of time working towards a big goal. And I believe that cycling makes people's lives better. And I think that I can tell my story over time in a way that's like fun for me to share and to connect with other people who are pursuing the same thing or interested in the same thing or might wanna give cycling a try. Um, and also kind of just like show that process. Uh, so I end up posting like a lot of the same things. It's kind of boring, like I'm in the gym two days a week, I'm on my bike every day, I'm posting these same types of things. Um, but I think through that, I really hope to, yeah, inspire other people to work towards those long-term goals, to get outside, to, um, ride their bikes with their friends to start riding if they've never tried it before. Uh, and I think that can be really positive. There are of course the negative sides that have to be managed. Um, but overall I've kind of seen that, you know, when I'm being intentional about it, those positives outweigh the negatives. Do you find yourself kind of getting sucked into social media consumption on a personal basis and how 
if you don't, great. But if you do, how do you balance that? Like, how, like, do you say? I have a timer. (laughs) I have have a limit for sure. Um, Primarily I'll get to my limit, like posting something, you know, like just like sharing things. Um, But yeah, I've never been like a huge scroller. I'll like check it maybe once or twice a day um, and just like, you know, five minutes or less, like see what's going on. and occasionally I do get, get down the rabbit hole of like dog videos. That's kind of my, like, you know, if I'm having a bad day and there's like cute visual puppies doing something cute, like that definitely is great. But, uh, I try to limit primarily the amount that I'm consuming on social media. Um, and I think actually one of the big things that I did, uh, last year that was really helpful is I just thought a lot about like the people I was following and what was showing up in my feed. Um, and I think, you know, I follow a lot of like amazing female athletes. I follow some hilarious dogs and I follow some like great thinkers and, um, researchers and leaders within the sports science world. And I actually am exposed to so much information and inspiration and motivation, um, on a daily basis. When I do check that, that it, it does keep me coming back for that. So it's, it sounds like you have a really health, quite healthy relationship with social media, which I mean, we'll see. like what is healthy, right? right. But I <laughs> mean, relative to the other side of things, which is, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, on that, like young people in particular, just kind of getting exposed to a lot of garbage and getting trapped in it. Like what's the, <laughs> Oh, totally. I mean, it can just like dominate your life. And I think it can also like really impact the way you think about yourself. Um, so for me, like there's certainly been times where that relationship has been, I would say less healthy. And in recent times, I think it's been really positive for me to like contemplate that. Why, like, why am I sharing this? What am I like, what's the point? Like, is this a waste of my time? And when you have that overall, like, no, this is why, uh, these types of posts are to inspire young women to ride bikes. Like all of a sudden it kind of, it becomes less about you and a reflection of like you as a person and this kind of like ego identity of, do people like me and how are they commenting? And oh, this person, like one of 80 comments was mean and now I feel bad. Um, <laughs> so I think really like separating that piece of like, this is a piece of who I am or a piece that I'm choosing to share from who you are as a person in the real world and how you feel about yourself uh, is a really important kind of like separation to make. Um, and for me, defining that like, why piece was really helpful and the why could be simple it does not have to be to like inspire cyclists like it could be showing my friends cool stuff i'm doing like i really like i use strava a lot and i actually ended up i have a private account that's literally just for my friends like i have 10 friends you know like there's not that many people that i need to like see everything i'm doing all the time um but like i love it it's like so fun to see where my friends are riding or what days they're out and like link up for rides um, and with people that I actually know. And that's a very different relationship with social media than putting something out for half a million people to see. Um, so I think that can be like a very broad definition of like what's comfortable for you and what you want. But if it is like, I'm putting this out there because like I feel bad about myself and like I need positive reinforcement, there are a lot of ways to get that in other places in your life that will be more positive and healthy and help you like grow to it will help you outgrow that feeling rather than kind of like put a plug in the sinking ship of that feeling (laughs) any advice you would offer for people who haven't quite gotten to that 
point where they're you know have the awareness of their use of social media and are kind of like stuck in sort of like the the self uh feeding negative spiral yeah i mean i do not have it all figured out it's something that i like repeatedly check in on like i check in on it with myself i have i talk to my husband about it like i check in on it with friends and family about like is are we at a good level like are we in a good place it's kind of like mental health in general where you're just you like just got to check in with it and keep working towards it and be willing to face the challenging parts and make changes. Um, I would say my, my best advice in terms of managing social media is like start with something small, start with a time limit. Like that actually made a huge difference for me just because like I ended up setting it at 45 minutes a day, which sounds Wait, just to stop you. Sorry. You're talking about the, uh, like, setting a limit on your phone for specific yeah like apps. I have like Instagram has a 45 minute limit for me which usually like it is part of my job so I do have like a giveaway post or something and those take kind of a long time to put up so that was like the healthy amount for me I was like appropriate I think my husband's is like 15 minutes so he can like give me a little shade on that but um it was 45 minutes and I found there were like multiple times when I first started using that limit where like it would pop up and I would be like oh, I'm actually not doing anything anymore. Like I was posting or I was like checking on my like three friends that I wanted to like connect with today or like doing something specific. And then it just like turned into like a vast, like what's happening on the internet search. Um, And the time limit would be like come up and I'd be like, oh yeah, for sure. Like we're done. And it was just like a nice reminder. Um, and then it also like brings some consciousness. There were times where I was like, no, I need like 15 minutes more. I am doing something or like, oh, you know what? I take that feedback, but I am still going to like keep using it. And it's just, I think it's like a good first step to like just having some consciousness around like, okay, how am I interacting with this? Is it positive or negative? And like, is it something that I want to change? Will it make my life better to change this? That's awesome. I mean, I think they give a lot of self-discipline, which is cool. Um, and I, I think, I, yeah, it's just like, I think part of the challenge currently in the world is a lot of young people get their phones a lot earlier. Like, when did you get your first yeah. cell phone? Oh, my God. Like, everyone's totally addicted to this. Like, this isn't like a super easy thing to just like, oh, like, just stop smoking. Like, everyone's addicted to, like, checking their phones, having your pocket. Like, it's something that is a huge part of my life. I got my first cell phone when I was, I think it was when I first started riding, it was when I was riding my bike to middle school and now I'm dating myself, but I had like a razor flip phone and you would like press the button like 10 times, like text your friend and you would send like three texts a month or something. So <clears throat> it's a different world. Like that was not a highly addictive piece of technology. Like it was really cute. It was a pink razor. It was very fun to like have, uh, but it was not something that you were going to spend a lot of time with. Um, and now like having an iPhone, like it's infinite and similar to social media, I actually think there's like huge positives, like education, like it is so much more accessible. People can do and learn and experience and share all these things that they never could before. That's huge, hugely positive, especially in terms of like, in my opinion, like democratizing access to technology and education, like there's a lot of people who like don't have access to these resources in other places and that now can at like a very affordable rate more so with education, like for young kids. Uh, I know that like an iPhone is not an affordable thing 
generally speaking. Um, but certainly, like, if you can get a college education on it, it's, it's much different than traveling, moving there, enrolling. So I think there's positives. Um, but I also think that it, it can be really challenging, especially when those habits are formed earlier and earlier. Yeah, yeah. And I think uh, more and more recently, or more recently, it's become more and more clear that there, there's so much money tied up into our attention uh, and basically buying it. And the younger mind is so susceptible to that. Um, yeah. What, what would you, I mean, I, I hate to keep asking you, what would you say to these people? But like, what, like, what's this, what's, what do we do for the young kids who aren't like, who their parents like give them an iPad because it's easy, you know, what's the, totally. what's the, how do we get over that hurdle? Yeah. I mean, and that's totally understandable also for the parents, like everyone's probably stretched, you know, and like when you're really busy and they're probably working really hard and childcare is really like under, um, available and expensive. Like I can see how this problem perpetuates. Um, I would say, in my opinion, I'm a firm believer in experiences in the outdoors. I think nature is very healing and um, has a really like positive balancing effect, uh, especially in relationship to technology. And that's part of why, you know, we were talking earlier, like, why do I keep sharing on social media? Um, I think, you know, finding something that you love to do and that you want more time to do uh, is a great first step. And for me, cycling is that. Like, I just love being on my bike. When I'm on my bike, I don't want to be on my phone. Uh, and, you know, that's that's a great motivator. Um, but I also think it's like a coping mechanism for a lot of other things. Like, it helps you deal with stress and anxiety and work through problems in your mind, like, while you're riding. And I think that's an experience that... Um, young kids should have, whether it's like going for a hike, going for a run, going for a ride, just being outdoors for a bit. Um, I think you can find a lot of what you're looking for externally in technology within your own self when you're put in those types of environments. Well said. Um, how about for someone? Everyone, ride <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, basically get a bike. Yes. Um, what, uh, so putting yourself in the shoes of a young person who has a dream and they want, well, if they have a dream, they obviously want to pursue it, but they are pulled in the complete opposite direction by peers, peer pressure from school, teachers, whatever, parents telling them that they should pursue this career, which has nothing to do with their dream that they've had. Um, what, what suggestions would you have? Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah, I was pretty lucky. Like I, my career ended up um, following a direction that, you know, certainly wasn't like what everyone was doing at that age and what my friends were doing. Um, but it was something that I, I had a lot of support with, which I know is a huge privilege and I, I really appreciate, especially uh, now looking back. But I think, you know, trusting yourself is the first step and really like thinking critically about whether this is what you want to do and you see a real future. And then I think mapping out the steps to what that type of a dream would take to accomplish. Um, you know, for me, I didn't really know at the time that I started racing that it would be possible to race at this level. Uh, and I certainly didn't know all the steps. 
But I think I started with like some initial steps. Like what would it take to win a local race? What would it take to win a state level race, a national level race? Okay, now I get to compete in Europe. Oh, wow. Clearly it's going to take a lot more to compete there. Um, and so the process kind of went like that for me. But I think when you can map out, like, here's where I want to go, here's where I am, and these are those steps, um, then it's easier to communicate to other people why you're doing it and, and what that dream is and how you see yourself reaching it. Um, but I think it also makes you more likely to, like, take those initial steps and just start to form that trajectory. And now I think we're going back to, like, the very beginning of our conversation. We're coming full circle. Um, I think when you can do that, like your starting point is not as important as that trajectory. And as soon as you like start to improve, you start to make progress and you're moving in that right direction, I am sure um, that if you can kind of like map that out and continue to see where that's going, like people will support you. Uh, even if maybe at that starting point they're saying like, hey, you're here and you want to go here. Um, if you have a plan, if you have that trajectory, and if you're willing to take those incremental steps day after day, um, I think, yeah, you have a good chance of getting there and of uh, earning a lot of support along the way. Yeah, breaking it down into little steps and then just, just taking the first one goes taking a long way, step. right? Yeah. yeah. Um, talk, I should have asked this, uh, talk about not going full circle. What's, tell me about your affiliation with Maxis and how that started. Yeah, so I started working with Maxis in 2019. Um, I joined the Scots Ram mountain bike race team and they're my professional team to this day. I'll race for them through the next Olympics at least. Uh, so obviously like a very important part of my support structure and a team I'm really grateful to race for. And they've been supported by Maxis for a really long time. I think they have had um, a very long standing sponsor relationship. Uh, so for me, I kind of got to walk into that and learn from my teammates and, and start to use the products, which was a really great experience. Uh, and then more recently, we've worked together quite a bit to develop um, new tires that are best for different conditions on the XC race circuit. So we have a really awesome mud tire. We have a great short track tire. Uh, and I've really appreciated that innovation and also the kind of collaboration to get the athletes the best product possible. So eyes are on the next Olympics, and I'm sure a bunch of races between now and then. What are you most looking forward to, or what are you looking forward to generally? Yeah, I think, um, you know, we talked a little bit about at the beginning about that kind of reset and that build back. And I think for me, it's really rewarding, particularly after failing big time, um, to work with the team and to just kind of grind away and make progress. And I think... You know, we're, we're hoping that in the next few years there's one of those breakthrough moments. And I think, um, yeah, working towards that with this team of people that I know believes in me and I know um, is willing to push through tough times and have my back and figure it out together, I think will be a really exciting and rewarding process. Any closing thoughts, Kate? Any Thoughts or any thoughts? <laughs> anything you want to close out with, or you feel good? I feel good. Sweet. Well, thank you so much for taking the time on a awesome. Sunday. Thank you. No problem. I really appreciate it. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for listening to that conversation I had with Kate Courtney back in November in the Bay Area. I really appreciate Kate's intentionality, and I think that's probably contributed to her success in the sport is being so focused and driven and not distracted by the various things that are thrown her way, including on social media and with her phone. 
Kate has an impressive social media following, and even still, she's not sucked into all of the distractions and noise that comes with, well, what I can imagine comes with being a prominent figure on social media. So kudos to Kate, and thank you so much to her for her time, and thank you to you for listening. We have two more episodes coming up over the next four weeks. Next week, next episode, we have Barry Nobles, another incredibly talented athlete in the BMX discipline. And Barry is going to be the second to last one in this series. Make sure you check out my video with Kate Courtney that came out a couple days ago. It's posted on the Eyes Up Ride Instagram as well as the Maxis Tires YouTube page. Check it out. Enjoy. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss the last two episodes. And whatever comes next, it's a developing platform, and there is sure to be some great goodies coming your way. So look forward to that, and we'll talk to you in two weeks. And also, please be sure to turn on Driving Focus. This feature is available in your phone's settings. If you don't know how, head over to eyesupride.com resources. It's an easy way to eliminate distractions in the car from your phone. Keeps those pesky notifications from lighting up while you're driving so you can focus on what's really important, which is the road in front of you. Thanks again for listening. Have a great couple weeks. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.